The odds are pretty good that if you're listening to this podcast, you've never had to wonder what life would be like without access to the global financial system. You likely have access to a full suite of financial products and services to meet your needs, allowing you to transact, make payments, accumulate savings, and gain access to credit and insurance. This episode is about the 1.7 billion people who are excluded from the system and how we can design systems to mobilize capital for marginalized rural populations. This episode is about financial inclusion. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the second ever episode of Blockchain for Humanity. For those astute listeners out there, you'll notice that we changed the name from Emerge to Blockchain for Humanity. The reasons behind that will go undisclosed. It'll be a mystery. We'll let you know on episode 100 why we changed. In the meantime, join us for a conversation today about financial inclusion. So today we've got Lucia on the line. Hello. And of course, myself, Aaron Ballantyne. How have you been, Lucia? What's, uh, what's your last week been looking like? Hectic. Uh, highs and lows, like the life of every other entrepreneur. Yeah, How about my, yours? My, my week has been uh, pretty good. Um, in Toronto, we both live in Toronto, and uh, I work for a company called Blockchain Ambassadors. Me and my partner, Amy Tractor, we just had this big blockchain job fair here in Toronto. We had about 30 companies come out and uh, nailed it. 350 attendees. And now that that's in the rearview mirror, a successful event for the community, I'm looking forward to new things. Like our podcast. Like our podcast. So let's dive right into it. Today's conversation is about financial inclusion. Um, and maybe a good place to start is a conversation about financial exclusion and what that looks like. So Lucia, do you want to kick it off? Sure. Well, I was going to paint a picture because I think visually. And so I was thinking about a farmer in my home country, Honduras, who would live in the uh, west coast, so where it's very dry. He would be a farmer or she would be a farmer that plants probably soybean and coffee together in the same farm. Um, And unfortunately, there's been a recent increase in the amount of uh, rust disease that's spread across the region. So that means that they would have lost a lot of their coffee crop. And the problem with this is that coffee grows on two-year cycles, so it requires it's very labor-intensive and time-intensive. So losing one season's worth of crops is actually very detrimental to a farmer. Um, so assuming that this portion of coffee was lost, um, that means that their income for the next season will be quite limited because they will not be able to sell as much as they normally would. And so this is a big factor of um, irregular cash flow. Um, dependent on on the outcome of of their economic activity. And so, okay, assuming that they've lost it, they now have to make up for this this loss of of income. So they have several options. Because they operate predominantly in an informal economy, they would go to family or friends. But rust disease spreads rapidly, so it is very likely that they too have now limited income due to this. And so another option would be to rely on moneylenders, also known as loan sharks. Assuming that that would be their choice, um, they would likely have to agree to terms of anywhere between 40 to 50 percent interest rates per month, which is extremely high. Um, That would be their their only choice, though, because there wouldn't be a bank around. And even if there were a bank, they would likely be unable to access things like proof of identity to be able to... Um, open a bank account or a savings account. Or, or even if they have that proof of assets to, to lay claim against their... Property title's business. a no-go, yeah. So that means they probably wouldn't be able to take out a loan because they wouldn't have anything to back their loan with. 
Um, and then also, uh, on that note, they wouldn't, uh, they just wouldn't be able to, to even prove anything for a line of credit, a credit history, because they, they likely would not have one. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, Honduras started collecting credit history very late in the game, like in the 1990s or something. Um, so already the entire population, even those that are included, are, uh, are generally short on credit history. So it would be even more difficult for a rural farmer to access this. Of course, that's not the only picture of where financial exclusion can take place, but this is a big portion of the world. Um, and in some countries, only two to four percent of people have access to, to you know, formal financial services and programs. And how many people are currently excluded from the financial system? So about 1.7 billion working age adults in 2018 is the, the most recent stat I've read. Um, but if you look at different uh, income levels, then you'll notice that the lower income quintile has about 77% exclusion rates. 77, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, financial inclusion is a huge issue around the world and, and probably one of the, the major use cases for blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a way to pull people out and include them in, in the current financial system. I think it's... And not unique to emerging markets because financial exclusion is also happening across North America, across Europe. And so think about, you know, someone in Baltimore, Baltimore like you mentioned Detroit, earlier today. Yeah, yeah that uh, undergoes a health crisis and has no access to universal healthcare programs and has limited coverage on their, their medical insurance and is set back by hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medical bills. M earn a minimum wage job, have a family. What, uh, you know, what access do they have to different formalized financial services and credit and loans and so on and so forth? Yeah. And what are the terms? Being poor is definitely a self-perpetuating state of being. If you, if you don't have money or access to financial instruments, then you're left in a difficult situation where you have to rely on loan sharks or you just don't have the tools available to, to pull yourself out of that state. And the way that the current system is, it makes it very expensive to be poor. Yeah. And it's inconsistent and it's insecure and it's unreliable and yes, expensive. If you're thinking about interest rates, if you're thinking about what you would have to pay to make up for the lack of formality and, and formalized access. Um, and it also just like impairs your ability to generate new wealth, to start a business, to create um, in investment, uh, investment portfolios, to be able to access capital markets and to be able to use any money that you are saving in a way that is conducive to you actually increasing the amount of capital proportional to the amount of, of children that you end up having so that there is this opportunity to, to pull yourself out of a poverty trap. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that this conversation has been framed uh, a lot of the time is about banking the unbanked. Yes. Um, increasing uh, access to, to bank accounts and getting people included in the financial system. But I think an important caveat is that it's so much more than just bank accounts uh, yes. and giving bank accounts to people. Yes. It's about providing identity. It's providing land yes. title. It's about um yeah, hu capital. human capital. Yeah, so if I'm thinking about, um, you're right, this is an incredibly multidimensional issue. If you're thinking about what barriers to inclusion actually are, um, there's a lot of them. And, and this is why this issue gets complicated and it isn't about just opening a bank account. It's because there is an overwhelming lack of financial understanding, financial literacy um, is also what it's known as. On the consumer side, even in North America, where we don't really teach people about their taxes or about how to, to have open an investment account or to, to manage an investment portfolio, um, we don't really teach people about the generation of wealth other than starting a business or saving 
um, through very uh, risk-averse mechanisms. And so thinking about financial literacy in, in, you know, around the world is a big issue. You're thinking about the fact that banks, even as they are, don't really develop or design suitable products and programs and services that meet the needs of the unbanked, for example, because their, their income is cyclical or because it's inconsistent or because it requires a different approach and different infrastructure. And so the dynamic is different and therefore we can't take you know, these like cookie cutter programs and services that are offered in one place and then expect them to meet the needs of, of populations that have historically been excluded and are now just starting to adapt to formalized structures. Um, and so if you think about geographic distances and what it may, may, how long it may take for someone to reach a bank branch, um, thinking about, okay, even if the bank does decide to open a remote location, high transaction costs, and then that still excludes areas where they're not located. Mm. Um, if you think about, yeah, erratic cash flow and, and lower income levels, that might not make it worth for a bank to actually create these services because the money that you deal with is significantly lower and it might not necessarily be great for their bottom lines. Um, thinking about gender and how it, it's, you know, un, financial exclusion disproportionately affects women and actually young people as well. Um, and then thinking about, on a macro level, the policies that, that govern us and, and thinking about how they're dated and they haven't really changed all that much over time. And our banking system still looks very much the same and our education system still looks very much the same as, you know, what my grandparents did. And so, so we've been unable to really adapt these policies and, and, and readapt them to, to reflect the dynamic of, of how the world works today. So we've done a good job of, I think, identifying the issue um, of financial exclusion. How, at a very high level, how can blockchain technologies help solve some of these problems? Well, if you heard me talk about the barriers, I think a lot of those I noted are systemic. That it's the systems that aren't working. It's our education systems, our banking systems, our government policy. These are the systems that aren't working for the people that they're intended to serve. And so when you think about what blockchain can do, this is... In, ideologically speaking, it can open up a discussion on the way that we build systems and structures so that they do become more decentralized and inclusive of, of people we've rendered invisible over time. And at, at its very core, naturally, Bitcoin is about facilitating this transfer of money, both nationally and internationally, without the need of an institutional central party. So it, it really is about improving the way that value is transferred. So it's almost like creating this like digital digitized informal economy, except that it's on an immutable ledger, it's creating trust and it's adding transparency and it's allowing through, for example, smart contracts for you to create the conditions for it to be mediated. And so you're adding little bits and pieces of what makes banking systems and formalized systems good, um, but doing it in a way that is much more decentralized and building infrastructures through, through decentralized applications, for example, for mobile adoption, which is very high in emerging markets. Um, and so creating things like digital vouchers or uh, marketplaces, thinking about lending circles, which is very common practice in, in a lot of uh, regions in the world, thinking about the way you transfer money, about the way you track credit history. Um, and for businesses, you can help them reduce risk and become compliant to AML laws, anti-money laundering um, regulation, or, or thinking more about KYC, which is know your customer. And we'll deep dive into each of these applications um, over a series of episodes, but thinking about what blockchain can do, these solutions could essentially reduce costs for um, for people to access the services and make it worthwhile for them to access it. It can uh, limit the geographic distance barrier. 
so it can be done over technology, it can increase uh, revenues and it can increase the options for different forms of financing. Uh, it can reduce risks and it can enable new business models, thinking about tokens and digitized assets and so on and so forth. And importantly, it also um, adds this layer of transparency that might be missing from, from the way that we currently uh, operate and uh, ensure fair pay for, for people like farmers who constantly get taken advantage of. Um, and then even just looking at remittances, it could be a whole, it, it will be a whole episode. Remittances is, um, it's, I think the global remittances are going to hit $616 billion by the end of this year, which is an incredible, incredible amount of our global economy. And so uh, thinking about the way that they're sent is, is one thing, and also thinking about the transparency with which it is spent. Because a big part of this is that you're sending money back, but that also means you're trusting the person who you're sending it to to spend it in the way that you've decided it should be allocated. So to pay for your child's school, for example, or to cover family costs. And so that is, that is all trust because you're expecting that person to spend it on that. But there is no tracking of what happens to the money afterward. And so, so the person that's sending it may never know if, that's in, if you know, their child's school is actually being paid. Um, so this is another thing to think about. And that's not to say that any of this is easy. It's all very, very complicated and a lot of challenges to the, you know, with the technology itself and a lot of challenges to actually implementing this and to designing these solutions to actually work as opposed to just designing them to fail. Yeah, we, you, there's so much to unpack there with regards yeah. to remittances or yeah. um, programmable money, basically sending, it, sending money and making sure it's, it's spent the way that it's meant to and the transparency behind that and providing transparency to... To individuals and, and organizations, and de-risking um, through that that transparency mm-hmm. and being able to see you know transaction histories or establish some form of, of credit history. So much to unpack there. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of individual challenges there that are baked into that, and I, I don't I don't know if the technology is there or how long it's going to take us to get there. Uh, but what are some of your thoughts on? what would be the, the top barrier to, to kind of implementing this? One top? No. Because, <laughs> yeah, again, we can talk, we could sit here I mean, for 40 minutes and talk about barriers. Sure. I mean, scalability so. is a big issue, right? Transaction costs are still high for for even Bitcoin transactions. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not super low. Um, I paid a $7 fee to buy coffee the other day with crypto. Um, and so it actually cost way more than my coffee. <laughs> so thinking That's about... That's just a bad investment decision. That is a terrible investment. That's, that's because you weren't taught how you know finance in high school. I was not given financial literacy classes in high school. I, I still complain about this, um, but no, I mean absolutely, transaction costs are still high. So thinking about the scalability of the technology itself, I think is going to be very important. But I'm just going to ignore the fact that you told me to limit it to one and just go ahead and mention the fact that we need more education and information. We need to demand a lot of transparency from um, from democratized finance because. Here's the here's tricky thing, is that when you're creating financial inclusion, you have to do it so responsibly. Um, if you think about this craze, this ICO craze, where these projects are getting funded left, right, and center in the you know double-digit millions of dollars or more, um, and, and people are flocking to them. And so historically, if you think about the people that are investing and buying into these ICOs, a lot of them have been excluded from traditional public markets. So they didn't have the opportunity to buy into the Coca-Colas or the Apple stocks that gave a lot of people passive in income and created a lot of, of new wealth. And so being excluded from that and coming across a technology that promises to democratize that 
you immediately want to buy in. And so you don't do your due diligence and you invest in these tokens and it's historically just being excluded from these public markets. And so it also requires some self-regulation and saying, we demand that all of our projects you know, be transparent about why they're raising this amount of capital and what they're planning to do with it and what this product looks like and what their business plan looks like. Because I do hear of, of ICOs being extremely su- successful at pre-product, pre-revenue, pre-business plan stages. And that's kind of ridiculous. And it's also detrimental to our goals of creating financial inclusion. You know, and on the flip side of that, when you are built, creating or designing a product or a solution, then it's also thinking about, you know, this is, if you are cre- if you are creating something for financial inclusion, you're dealing with livelihood and not spare income. So a lot of people will will give you some money, but they can't necessarily afford to lose it all that much. So you have to be a lot more responsible with the way that you are creating these opportunities to include people into formalized structures and services and programs. Yeah, when I think about financial inclusion, I don't necessarily think about those who are able to participate in ICOs for the first time. I think about those who never had a credit card or never had a bank account or have zero access to credit or... But it's a spectrum, right? It's a yeah. spectrum of, of exclusion. And so there, there's this cross between people that can't even prove their identity. And so how do you design products and services for people that can't even pr- prove who they are, which is generally the first step of accessing a program or service. And then on the, on the, you know, along that spectrum, you also have people that are now able to invest in ways that they weren't able to before with, with whatever income they have, you know, that they, that they can spare. And so all of that is inclusion. All of that is exclusion and understanding how to build products and services and and create access to capital markets and create access to to bank accounts or credit histories and so on and so forth requires like a blue sky of understanding what the full spectrum looks like. I can think of more barriers. (laughs) I can definitely think of more barriers. There's the cybersecurity concerns. Thinking about, um, you know, if we are building systems for people that lack financial literacy and are not matching our education to, to the products that we're building, then how do you build systems that minimize the ramifications for human error? And so cybersecurity becomes a big issue. Um, If you're thinking about um, other factors that tie into inclusion, you can't go without access to healthcare. You can't go without land registry because, you know, loans often rely on on things like property. Um, Climate migration, which makes it difficult to build infrastructure, physical infrastructure, because despite building all of this in the digital world, it still needs to be somewhat interoperable with the physical world. You need to be able to pull out and and put in money as well. So thinking about what happens off-chain is also really important and still a factor, an important factor. So current barriers like infrastructure and access and remote populations and roads and things like that still come into into play. So it's um, really we're just adding barriers is all. Not to not to be so negative. <laughs> There's so many factors uh, that factor into the issue of financial inclusion. Is this kind of the Moby Dick, the big whale that we need to tackle? And I think. I personally think there's a step before that, which is this identity issue, because a lot of this relies on you being able to prove identity. So I think it's still identity, but I think that, that they go hand in hand, obviously. And and that financial inclusion can in fact become almost like a like a reward for for going about gaining proof of identity, like registering the birth of your child and making sure that, that you do have these forms of identity. So it can be this like uh, this reward at the end of the line for for gaining identity, and so I think they come hand in hand. But yes, I think absolutely this is a this issue will be top of mind for everyone in the space 2019, 2020, 2021, at least until we solve it, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, so I think learning more about this is really important, and also making sure that people that are designing the solutions do it in a way that will actually solve the problem and not 
by default create new ones because again like financial exclusion it's hard to imagine and we think about it very generally in in stereotypes and so it's really important that when we are designing these products and services that we go through that experience of what it means to be financially excluded that that ICO conversation never comes up but that's also financial exclusion mm. and that's not the way that it is thought about and so i think that we really need to take a, an approach that is much more in the community development side of things and and look at academic literature that's been you know done throughout the years research that's been done throughout the years to really gain a better experience hire people from these communities um like really focus on on creating these focus groups and opportunities for feedback mechanisms because it can't possibly be that these products and services that are intended to create financial inclusion for rural communities in XYZ country are being designed exclusively in North America. Yeah. It can't possibly be. And so um, thinking about the way that we design products and the responsibility and empathy which we we really must prioritize when building them, I think those are key to, to designing this and to solving this problem. Just imagine a world where financial inclusion is not an issue. Yeah, it'll come. I think enough enough of us are committed to the cause. We're going to make it happen. It's just a matter of how long it takes and how fast we can get the technology there to to help support us. So just to touch on the point on empathy and building systems with people from different communities, how, how do you do so? What's what in your eyes is the best way to to build solutions that actually work in a localized fashion globally? Sure. I think this is twofold. Um one part is understanding the nuances between the communities you're trying to reach because we use the term emerging markets like a blanket term but you like we all need to understand that each market is very different and creating banking programs and services for Africa is vastly different than creating them for the Middle East or Latin America and so you know it's great to say bank the unbanked but the unbanked experience is like incredibly different in each market and so trying to to make sure that your company and your team is self aware enough to understand this will help localize products in a much more future proof and sustainable manner. And I can think of, you know, examples that uh, that have done this terribly like Uber in the Middle East because it didn't account for this, you know, uh, anti-debt cash first society. Um but it understanding how to build products and services so that you can localize them appropriately I think will be key and then you know naturally that also means that the way that you build your team has to reflect um the diversity that is of opinion and culture and background and preference and so on and so forth because you you can't have people that have lived similar life journeys creating products for people that have lived entirely different life journeys that are quite unimaginable mm-hmm. and so making sure that you fold in a couple of developers from the markets you're trying to reach and fold in a, um a couple of of product designers and and try to make your your teams as diverse as possible to account for as much of the world as possible i think is helpful um and it will lead naturally to products that can be massively adopted by more people because they are designed by by a reflection of themselves as opposed to one core life journey um so i think it's really important to find that balance between understanding your your product market fits with an emphasis on the market and then building the teams to reflect that market fantastic point and if people want to learn more on the issue of financial inclusion what resources would you want to share with them Um I think the World Bank has done a lot to both contribute and hinder <laughs> but they do a lot of research in terms of of financial inclusion data and reports so I would look at, at their reports I would also look at at Jeffrey Sachs who has spent his life looking at issues of of uh of poverty and poverty traps his book The End of Poverty is probably like a a classic book uh economics book on this issue and he also talks a little bit about how startup culture can um 
can be adapted to to address issues of poverty um, and so and, and financing uh, startups can also have have these parallels and so it's a really interesting approach to that um, Bono wrote the intro if that matters to anyone <laughs> um, but uh, also the uh, German Development Institute wrote a primer on blockchain technology for financial inclusion so that is also recommended reading um, and then I guess listening to more of these podcasts because we will be breaking down some of the applications that we've talked about like remittances and access to capital markets and, and so on and so forth. Cool. Yeah. Bono's my favorite Beatle. Um, <laughs> we will put, <laughs> That's great. we'll put more details in the show notes, um, links to all of the resources that we discussed today, but I think that's a great place to end the conversation. So Lucia, thank you very much again. Thank and you. if people want to follow on social, they can at emerge dev. Emerge underscore dev. Emerge underscore dev. Or visit the website, emergedev.co. But we'll end it there, and next week we'll pick up the conversation discussing... It's a surprise. Yeah, it's a surprise. To yes. me, to you, to everyone. But also, you can have a say in what we discuss next. Write to us at hello at emergedev.co, and uh, we'll happily take your suggestions and your questions and your ideas and, uh, and go with them. Run with them. Cool. Well, we'll end it there. We'll pick up next week. So thank you guys for listening in and subscribe. Bye.